This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Joining me today is Kirby Callis Lewis and Alan Jackson of the Ula Distillery in Seattle, Washington. Kirby, Alan, thank you guys for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank great you. to meet you. Yeah, thank you. So guys, tell me about your distillery. What are you building out here at Ula? Well, I guess I could start with that. I started the distillery in 2010, in January. So we just had our fifth year anniversary. Whoa. Well, congratulations. So, Happy birthday. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. <Ula>. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oddly enough, that does make us old timers here in yeah. <laughs> the Washington state. It tells you how young the industry is of craft distilling. So we decided to make something that was exciting to us, but also that took advantage of the great agricultural state that Washington is. So great relationships with farmers in eastern Washington, growing organic grains for us, for our spirits. And then another fantastic relationship here on this side of the mountains for our spent grains, all used as animal feed. And oh wow, because the grain's certified organic, that's a big boost for a farmer that's trying to get their products, their meat and their eggs and all certified as well. So we're able to give away a lot of grain. So <laughs> the whole community aspect has been a real plus and a real incentive from the beginning. Bartenders and servers and restaurateurs, they're all a fun group of people. And essentially, we're all out for a good time and to create that for others. Yeah. And by the way, create high quality spirits too. Not just a good time, but a good time through the amazing stuff that you guys are making here. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I will say, thanks for pointing it out. We are in an urban space. <laughs> We're in downtown Seattle, maybe not downtown, but we are in the middle of Seattle. So if anyone hears any sirens or anything going by, that's just street noise, right? It's not <laughs> no a problem. No one's getting here. arrested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just last until the end of this interview. And then, <laughs> so I guess Kirby, as the founder, let me ask you, what does the name Ula mean? I checked the dictionary. I couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny deal. I get the aforementioned restaurateurs and bartenders and servers, people in the industry together, and we'd taste some of my trial products and go through talking about locations and just thinking about the business with others. And the name kept coming up. And somehow Ula got thrown into the mix. And it was kind of a joke initially because it's the name of my fantastic German Shepherd dog. Oh, really? And, <laughs> but so many people who didn't know me that well and didn't uh -huh. know the dog... 100% like Dula is a name. So I started taking it more and more seriously. And gotcha. have to say, if it immortalizes the dog a few extra years, that's all the better. She's now <laughs> in her prime, so we're not thinking that far ahead yet. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully 100 years from now when you're up and running still, yeah, yes. the name Ula will still be emblazoned upon your bottles and remembered. I think yeah. I'll always have a dog named Ula, probably. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Kirby, your background is in the arts, Right. Correct? Yeah. yeah. That's not firing up a still and making booze. Um, where did this desire to open up a distillery come from? Yeah, I think it's spending really years and years being very excited about food and wine as an enriching part of my life. I certainly developed a palate. I tell people like as a child, I Parents were completely flummoxed by what the heck is this kid doing? I'd work hard, <laughs> shovel snow in Minnesota and mow the lawns of the neighbors and save all the money and go out to good restaurants. So, oh, wow. Okay. And if I could get served a glass of wine, all the better. <laughs> yeah. So it's been a passion of mine. And then when I was looking to shift out of the art business, this was the world to look in. So I yeah. looked into growing grapes even and winery world and restaurant tour world and mm -hmm. uh, bartending world. And once I hit the distilling 
which I wasn't that into spirits before. Hmm. Always loved a good gin martini, but it just took hold of me. And my wife will tell you, I became truly obsessed. Oh, really? I like to seem more passionate, but that's like, that's what I did. I thought about it and read about it and yeah. experimented and went and worked little stints at other distilleries and really just fell in love with the whole process. We're, we're going to get more into the products that you make, but just you make such a fantastic variety, a wide range of products. It's also fairly artistic what you're doing too with flavors. But I would imagine it kind of taps into that same part of what drew you into the arts world too. Yeah, I think the idea of making something that's a little unique, not necessarily making the next great London dry gin, but put a little twist on it. When we started making our rosemary vodka, nobody else was making rosemary vodka. As much as I could Google it, nothing came up. So Mm -hmm. something a little bit unique and something that's exciting to me personally, but also has some legs. There's lots of trials that never left the the (laughs) chemistry bench back there. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) You have more of a direct background in the spirits world, don't you? Yeah, I do. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody who knows how all this is supposed to work. Wait a second. Yeah, you were in the distribution business for a while. For 25 years. And then about this time last year, a mutual friend of Kirby's and mine introduced us. And I knew within a very short period of sitting down to speak with Kirby that I had to work here. It was his passion for the business, the way that he takes care of his people, and the pride that he has in representing the neighborhood and the local area Mm -hmm. was something I wanted to be part of. Oh, very cool. And so, are you happy you moved over to this side now? Yeah. (laughs) Saved my life. (laughs) I'm thrilled. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Very cool. Well, guys, I kind of have a, not trying to start any fights over semantics with anyone over this, but (laughs) it's just something I am interested in. I believe my listeners will be also. So, guys, this word craft is kind of thrown around a lot today. What does it mean to be handmade? What does it mean to be small? A lot of the biggest distilleries in the world have little craft labels, you know, but it all comes out of the small, the same places. It's a word that can kind of mean anything. Craft is booming in Washington. It's booming across the country. I'm just curious, as craft distillers and craft distillery operators, what does craft mean to you? Well, I can start. It's interesting because it's a legal term in our state. So I'll leave that aside because that gets really confusing and meaningless very fast. But the true meaning of the word, I think everybody in this industry is interested in and aware of and has an opinion on. And I'm, I'm no different for sure. But I think we were talking earlier, walking through the distillery, a gin made from neutral grain spirits can be the most beautiful gin ever. It can be a well-crafted gin. It can be a craft gin. It can have all those criteria. And I think that's because you may start out with a clean slate product, but you're adding all the botanicals that you're interested in and you're crafting that and designing that gin around that. So there's gray areas like that. Also, as you know, we use our own base vodka because it added such an interesting note, which from a business perspective is a real killer. It's a lot more expensive (laughs) way to do it, but we do that. (laughs) Okay. Because you you aren't just getting a tanker full of GNS coming back into your warehouse now. Let's just start blending it together. And bottling. And bottling, yeah. I think that for me is where the line gets crossed. If somebody doesn't really significantly alter their product... Mm-hmm. If that they purchase and they just put it in bottles and really underscore that word significant. You can't just redistill it once and call it your product. Mm-hmm. So that's where the craft line 
is drawn for me. But if somebody's actually making a gin the way I described or making a rum from purchased cane syrup out there, I think they can still make a product I would certainly consider craft. Yeah. And I think also it's a little bit your intent. It's like the law when you rob a house. Are you really just borrowing some money from your neighbor who you know it would be okay? Or is your intent actually to defraud the customer or your neighbor of their money? I mean, so that enters in too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it also comes down to what you're willing to live with yourself. Sure, okay, right, right. Don't call it craft if it's not. (laughs) And I think we all really know in our heart if Mm -hmm. it's a crafted product. (laughs) I think that's a great point. Something I hear from other people that I talk to and ask this question. It's about honesty, ultimately. What do you say on the label and how are you projecting yourself to the customer, right? Because there is so much more to making a spirit than just base distillation. Because you can distill something. You can put grain, water, and yeast together and distill it, and it can taste terrible. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. that was handmade. But then how do you make a good gin? There's still so much more craft or art that goes into it, blending the flavors and the botanicals together. And Alan, you're in the marketplace a lot. So what do you hear back from people? Uh, I tell you, I have a short and sweet answer. And that is do everything within your control to make this batch better than the previous batch. That way you have pride in what you're doing. You're taking out the best product that you have every time you go out and visit accounts. And to me, that's the definition of craft. Wow, fantastic. Well, guys, you've opened up in an urban area, as we highlighted, with the traffic noise in the background. Did you always want to be an urban distillery? Was being a part of a community part of something that you had envisioned from the beginning when you were first thinking about purchasing a still and opening a distillery? Or did you think, should we be up in the mountains or something and be that rural distillery? I did flirt with the idea of opening up in a small town. Our bourbon is called Waitsburg Bourbon, and that's named after a little town in eastern Washington. It's an amazing place surrounded by vineyards and wheat fields. So it's in the heart of the agricultural abundance that I mentioned earlier. But I quickly realized that to really launch a brand is a pretty ballsy thing to try and do. And to do it out in the middle of nowhere in a town of 1,200 people and Mm -hmm. get a little wine tourism, but they like wine, you know. Yeah, Um, they have to give us some foremost. Right. (laughs) So quickly realized that we did live in Seattle. So to open up, I lived just two blocks from the distillery, which has been a really big help for lifestyle. And Mm -hmm. how's that commute? (laughs) It's fantastic. Yeah. Yes, I can go home for lunch and be back in 20 minutes. Excellent. <laughs> including the commute. Including the yeah. commute. And again, for me, it has been so much about building a community and having people around you, like-minded people around you. And the dense urban neighborhood just made sense. And okay. probably have a thousand people walk by the distillery in the course of a weekend just on foot. Yeah. So that also really helped build our brand. Mm-hmm. I say people come by here and they see the name on it. If they've never noticed before, it's like, oh, let's go find out what that is. Versus if you're in a 1,200-person town, to get that same foot traffic, you would literally need to march the entire town in front of your distillery. Every day. Every day, (laughs) yes. And they all know you very well and fast in a little town. Stop marching us in front of you. We've been by. Yeah. Yeah. The challenge is the real estate costs where we are leasing the building. It's double what it would be, even 20 minutes out of the center of downtown Seattle. So that's a big cost. But when we first started, again, going back to that, it was state-run system. And you were, as a distillery, allowed to sell out of your sales room. So the state-run system 
really drove people to the distillery because it was so much more exciting to go direct where that's tapered off now that's privatized and people can buy our spirits at their local grocery store when they're picking up groceries. So the sales room is tapered off a little bit, but it's still easy to fill the distillery for a launch party or get people in for a special event. That was going to be my next question. I know that the laws in Washington State have recently changed and made it easier is always the wrong word to say, but more attractive to open up a distillery because a lot of the restrictions have been reduced. But you guys were opening up before those changes happened, then you were going to do it anyways. Yeah. So I always do wonder if those if that law passing made you want to open it up even more, but it sounds like you were going to put up with those restrictive laws no matter what. Yes, we had no idea. When we first opened the doors, nobody thought we were going to privatize the liquor stores. So Dry Fly Distillery in eastern Washington had pioneered the distilling industry in Washington state. And they did that by tying distilling to using agricultural products from Washington. Mm -hmm. So that softening of those laws first made it possible And then that second wave, it was tricky to navigate. But after the privatization of the stores, I think we have a lot more opportunities. Yeah, Alan's out in the street pretty much daily, and he just wasn't an opportunity with the state-run system. Under the old way, yeah. You couldn't self-distribute. You couldn't really bring anything into a potential buyer under the old system. It all had to be done through the state. Through the state, and there were very few of the state-run locations that were willing to take a chance with a new emerging craft spirit industry. You had to be in metropolitan areas near the distilleries, and that's where the best success was initially. Same with the craft bars. But as things have loosened up a little bit, we definitely have a broader range to draw from as far as distribution. So those changes have helped you spread faster than what the old system would have done. Definitely. So you are definitely receiving a benefit from the fact that these have changed, yeah. So kind of looking back then, what was sort of your biggest hurdle in getting your distillery up and running? Can you think of one thing that kept you up at night right as you were first getting started? (laughs) Was it just financial or was it like, oh man, how do I operate a 250 BTU boiler? (laughs) Never done that before. You're hitting on it. Yeah, Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, A lot of it was just the complete newness of it all. And sometimes I like, Woke up at night and think, am I trying to go head to head with Coca-Cola and make a new soft drink? There's big producers out there and it's like, I'm creating this factory to make this product. And they just thought to be a second or third generation distiller in this business would be the dream. So it was that big hurdle. To be honest, the difficulties unfolded over time, Hmm. luckily, or I probably never would have done it. Okay, Uh, (laughs) You hit one more wall and you get through it and then another. But Like, I think you're going to hear from everybody who asked that question too. Finances are tough unless you literally have a bottomless pocket. And if you do, give me a call. Anyone out there, if you have a bottomless pocket, (laughs) let's talk. Oh, I thought for the bottomless pocket. Darn, I wish I would have known you then. (laughs) There's still time. (laughs) It's basically immense. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of sleepless nights trying to figure out how are you going to make this happen. And so I think that's the biggest hurdle to really start a whole new business from the ground up and the learning curve and the finances that are involved. Yeah. The two big ones. I would imagine part of what made you want to get involved in it 
is there's a romance to making your own product, making your own vodkas and gins and bourbons. And like you said, you enjoy a cocktail and you're going to be a piece of that. But then there's the day-to-day reality of it is a factory, right? I mean, you didn't wake up one day and think, I can't wait to go and service a boiler one day. (laughs) (laughs) Sterra is still operating. It is a very much a day-to-day machine-driven job too. So there's a romanticism to it all. And then there's also just a grind to it too. Not in a negative way, but yeah. No, absolutely. There's a lot of repetition and the trials of the new products are super fun. And Mm -hmm. I can do that all day, every day. And luckily, filling bottles is dynamic and you're putting product into cases. I enjoy that to a certain Hmm. degree. And of course, I have a ton of help for that end of things. Yeah. And Alan, you just love the marketplace. I love getting out there and spreading the word. (laughs) Do you really? (laughs) I love it. Getting in front of new people and introducing them to what you guys are making. I am so proud of what we do here. I think every product we make is the benchmark for Washington Craft Distilling. Wow. The awards that we've received across the board on every product we produce have been fantastic. He is the salesman, you're right. Uh, that's amazing. I'll take three cases right now. <laughs> and when I go out and taste with bartenders and general managers, just the way that they respond once they actually put the spirit in their mouth, and mm-hmm. that's very rewarding to me. When you promote your product, I think one of the benefits you have in being a small craft distillery is the customer, the purchaser can actually meet one of you two guys, right? I mean, no one's ever going to meet the name of one of the large distillery, you know, one of the large places right. in Kentucky or globally. But with you guys, it's, oh, I want to talk to the distiller. Oh, well, let me bring Kirby in, for example. I mean, do you find that intimacy you're able to create with customers as being one of the things that really helps push you guys along? Oh, absolutely. I like to think that we add the educational aspect to this business better than any other craft distilleries as well. The number of people that we have representing restaurant chains or individual units that come through here to actually see the process. It's one thing for me to go out there and taste them our product in their facility, but it's totally different when we bring them here. And they leave as ULA ambassadors. We have people that are intimate with the distilling process, what it is we're doing, and can tell the story to their customers. So that helps us in the long run with the ultimate goal, depletions. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's a very good point in that someone goes into a bar I do this a lot. And I say, I want to try something new. What do you have that's new? Well, a bartender who you've met and has been brought into here and seen how everything is made, they grab a bottle of Ula and they can say, well, I, you know, this is a local Seattle made spirit. And let me really tell you the process on how they do it and what they do that's different. So, yeah, oh, exactly. Right. Yeah. And by the way, Kirby's a really nice guy. He was just in here yesterday. He invited me down to his place or Alan was in here. We went down and took a look. They're great people too. Yeah. It so matters. And you really feel that as you start to expand your business into other states because mm. it's pretty hard to be in those accounts. Oh, that's a good point. And you just have to make those trips. You can't be scared to get out from behind the still sometimes and actually no. go out there because it's, it's yeah, all part of running true. the business. Yes. If you never went out and just hid in your distillery and made a great product, it would go nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> no one's yeah. going to hear from it. Yeah, hear yeah. about it. So do you guys use any other kinds of promotional campaigns. You know, how else do you get the word out? When you can't be in every bar all the time meeting people, do you use a lot of social media, online stuff? Do you enter your products into a lot of competitions? How do you get the word out to a, on, a, on a larger level? I believe that the competitions play a good role. Again, because I was thinking of 
my love for wine, but it's so, you just have to skew the tiniest bit and you won't recognize any bottle on the shelf. And then I heard of this competition and this won a gold medal. Mm. So I've applied my own consumer experience to promoting our own product. So I think those competitions, I always say it doesn't change what's in the bottle, but it lets people know that it's a respected product from a respected competition. And yes, you want a silver or a gold medal. Let's give this a try. I think that matters when you're in D.C. or New York and the distilleries in Seattle. Yeah. That really, really helps. And Nicole, who's upstairs, say hi, Nicole. (laughs) She does our social media at this point in time and does a fantastic job getting the word out. She's constantly putting together little still lives and shooting great photos and making cocktails and shooting photos of those and getting it out there and being very creative. So that helps too. That's Mm -hmm. a nice modern benefit. So a question I get from a lot of people who are just getting started or want to expand beyond their ability to sell from their trunks in jurisdictions where are allowed to do it is finding the right distributor. So if you don't mind my asking you to kind of call upon your long five-year history of running a craft distillery, how did you find your first distributor? How did you get noticed by them? And how did you see if you were going to be the right fit for them? I can talk about the beginning and then I'll hand it over to Alan because he has mm-hmm. so much experience. Yeah, I would appreciate uh, that. At the very beginning, we did self-distribute. So our idea was to make those connections like you're talking about. I kind of wanted to shake the hand of everyone that I pitched to and the person that was working with me at the time did a great job as well. So we were out beating the streets and really making those connections. And we built it up to about 250 accounts and then just realized we can't run a distillery and be out there with cases in our trunk of our car on the back of my bicycle in some instances. <laughs> wow. Another benefit of the urban yeah. <laughs> location. That's very Seattle of you. And realized we need a distributor. And at that point, there were about three in the state that were really contenders for what we wanted. We wanted somebody that had a wide distribution throughout the whole state and somebody who wasn't too small, actually would see a lot of accounts. Mm-hmm. And then I think we were attractive because we were able to hand over 250 active accounts. Okay. People that loved us as a young distillery. So I think we had our pick of those three and then just settled on the one we settled on, mainly because of they were a little bit bigger scale and we knew we needed that to keep the doors open. So for you in the beginning, then it was very helpful for you to have kind of done that groundwork and get those 250 accounts at first because it validated you. Exactly, yeah. It kind of validated you with them, and they could see, oh, yeah, no, this is real. People are buying you. Yeah, Yeah. we were appreciated in the marketplace. That made Mm -hmm. a big difference, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. To not start from ground zero is huge for them, because you can say that this bar and this bar are doing really well with it already. It's on their cocktail list. It's so Mm -hmm. much easier for somebody who's on the fence to pick it up. Gotcha. So, yeah, that would be a recommendation I would have for Mm. people getting rolling. Yeah. Friends and family first. And then <laughs> Friends and family first. And any then. bars and restaurants they know of people uh-huh. that work in, and it just grows from there. Yeah. Really shake hands and <laughs> beat the streets. But know the bar first is also important. Don't just walk into a bar that's slinging cocktails four person deep on a techno night. Yeah. You know, you're there at four in the afternoon thinking, I hear they do a big volume and craft cocktails so far from their business plan. So just right. no, don't waste people's time, I think is also good advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, so do your research before you go in there and try to pitch someone. 
Yeah. If you don't meet their price point, then they're just not going to be interested. You're just wasting your time too and your ability to go out and talk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And time is very precious mm-hmm. in this business. Yes. <laughs> and then, Alan, what do you think in your experience, you know, since you've been on that side of it all, how do distributors think about when to take on? a craft brand and everything because it's a challenge for them too they have cases sitting in warehouses that they need to move and it's not like they don't respect what a new distiller is doing but it's a business for them as well I feel it's real important to be with a distributorship that is of the same mindset that we are and that is about being a great alternative to those mass-produced international brands we need to have somebody that knows how to sell into a niche and getting out and working with those distributor partners and teaching them about the distillery so they can teach their accounts. And it's just a cascading effect. So to me, the most important thing is making sure that we're with somebody that really understands what we're doing and they go about doing it the same way we do. And I think I would also add, as you're pushing out into other states, if you have a distributor that wants your product, but then at some point early on you realize while you're making your decision, they haven't even tasted it yet. They haven't commented on anything about the flavor of it. And if there's no passion, it's not going to work because this is hard to sell. It's really much harder to sell than Tangeray or something that's a lovely product as well, but everybody has heard of it and it sells itself. So that's one thing that as we grow, I'm always looking for. It's like, are you passionate about the product? Do you really love what we're doing as opposed to what another very good craft distillery is doing? Mm -hmm. Does it matter to you? Because if that doesn't translate, you're wasting your time and their time. Yeah, That's something I've heard from other people too. You are interviewing the distributor as much as they're interviewing. Yes, you want to be picked up by them because you want to be distributed, but would you kind of agree with the statement that you need to look at their portfolio also? And if they already have a craft gin that's just like your craft gin, then how are they going to move both of them? It's almost conflict of interest is a strong term, but you fit into that portfolio though, Mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, that's exactly right. Or is there a growth plan to bring on more distilleries exactly like yours? Maybe they don't have them yet, but that's a good pointed question to ask. And sometimes you don't like the answer. Okay. Um, but, (laughs) But yeah, then you still have to decide. But these are your representatives in places you can't be. So you have to make sure that they do represent you. And it goes back to the passion part of it. Like you pointed out, you need this distribution. So it's easy to just be flattered and jump on board and... Mm-hmm. You know, there are contracts involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not that easy to get out once you're in. And, yeah, and in some states um, you can't. <laughs> yes, right. Franchise states, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Okay, so thanks for all the macro level discussion. I really appreciate it. Now let's get into a, a little bit more micro. Let's talk about the things you actually make here at Ula. What do you make here at Ula? What are you putting in bottles here? Well, let's see. <laughs> Big question <laughs> yeah. here. When we first started, the first thing we did was put whiskey into barrels during construction even, to start that horribly long aging process. (laughs) That's the bane of every whiskey distillery's existence right now, even the Mm -hmm. big guys. Right. So, Because a three-year whiskey takes three years. Yes, it does. (laughs) We released our first whiskey when we were three and a half years old. Okay. And now most of it's hovering around the four-year mark. Then the vodka came next and shortly followed by gin. I think gin is such a complex spirit. I have a lot of respect for gin. And the process of making our gin was super fun for me. Took a long time to dial that in. Yeah. What was your taste-making process for making? You have several flavored vodkas as well. Your gin especially. You said you weren't a huge spirits person when you were first thinking about this idea. So how did you come up with your gin taste then? How did you know that this was going to be a gin that other people would want to enjoy as well? Well, a lot of trials were done. And then... 
I was fascinated by the influence of one botanical on the others. If you want less cardamom, it's not as simple as taking out some of the cardamom because that'll allow something else to come forward in a too great an area or something else to drop out. So they're all intermingled in there. So it got very, very complex. So what I came up with, which I think is a pretty good trick, is to make a spirit of each of your botanicals. So you have a cardamom spirit, a juniper spirit, and on and on, lemon thyme or orris root, and you're lining them all. So I had 25 different spirits I made lined up on the table. And then you can mix and match with an eyedropper or figure out a blend that way to get close. I see, okay. And then I also credit our final flavor profile to that process because I really got to know what a cardamom spirit could contribute. Mm -hmm. And so that was super, super important to me to not let that fall off the flavor profile. Yeah. For sure. You don't just start immediately with pushing things through a small vapor chamber and seeing how this blend works. Yeah, you really do have to break it down because flavors do interact with each other Mm -hmm. so much differently. Yeah. And then... For your other products, what made you want to do things like a chili vodka or a oh, yeah. lemon verbena vodka? I mean, fascinating flavors that you don't automatically think about. But yeah, so you guys do a lot of things besides gin. You also do an assortment of flavored vodkas, a citrus vodka, lemon verbena vodka. But what made you kind of want to do those more out there flavors or less traditional, like a lemon verbena? Yeah, I think it was just what you're saying, less traditional. So citrus vodka, it's all over the map. But a lot of that is not made with real botanicals. So Hmm. the idea of putting together a citrus vodka where I can actually grow the lemon verbena and the way we infuse it, we leave the twigs in a little bit longer, which gives it a little extra beautiful bitter note that gives it complexity so we can really tweak with it. Because a citrus vodka is a beautiful thing as long as it's not made a citrus note with the chemical. Right. So so that... probably most traditional flavor. And then I can't walk by a rosemary plant without Uh touching it and smelling it. And I just love that. So it's my favorite herb to cook with. So Mm -hmm. I really wanted to try and took quite a few experiments, but there was no other rosemary on the market. And it's such a beautiful herb. So I wanted to try that one and very, very happy with how that came out. And Mm. then uh, I've always been a fan of spice. So Eastern Washington, chili peppers are grown it's the king out there. It's yeah. such a great climate for it. So I consulted with a good friend who had a Mama Lil's pepper company and did mm. these jars of beautiful peppers that makes any sandwich so much better. Yeah. And pizza. So he helped Why me. Why not a vodka? Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. And it adds a little kick to a lot of cocktails and it's a beautiful product in and of itself. And by working with someone who really knows peppers, did something other than just like Ghost chili pepper, something that's right, just designed yeah. to burn your mouth out or something. Yes. This actually has more of a subtle note to it. Real rich pepper flavor, mm-hmm. and just a little heat a kick of that. Yeah, definitely not a macho yeah. contest <laughs> going on here. Right. <laughs> Alan, in your experience being the person that has to take something like a lemon verbena vodka and have to sell it, something that people haven't heard of, does kind of having those unique flavors help open doors because it is something different? Or when your experience, you know, when you try to have to pitch something like a rosemary vodka, which no one else has had on the market, people probably have questions about it. Sometimes it's a door that's tough to open because the craft mixologists think that they have to muddle everything themselves to oh. extract the flavors. 
But once they actually taste the product and realize that it's real food products that are going into making these infusions, and it's a very consistent product, they understand that it'll actually save them a few steps Hmm. in their cocktail making process. They can focus more on some of the other aspects, the show of shaking a cocktail when they know they have a good chili pepper (laughs) vodka. So it's just been an education process for the mixologists. Some of them you can't win over. Most of them eventually we do. Okay. But I imagine using the all-natural actual produce in it, not a flavoring, that's probably why a lot of mixologists do have misgivings about flavored things because they have to overcome not just a flavor, but an artificial flavor. And you can tell them, no, this is much more subtle because it's actually naturally, naturally flavored. When we talk about the infusion process with a customer, they have absolutely no idea how intense it is to put one of these infusions together. The chili pepper vodka, it's two and a half, three-year infusion that we're using. The uh, rosemary vodka is months. Lemon verbena has been in solution since September. So it's a very lengthy process. Mm -hmm. And then we just blend that into our base vodka and and everything's done by taste. And we end up, like I said, with a very consistent product. I guess that kind of goes to the story of the spirit too. Because then the bartender can say, you know, this was aged two years to extract all the flavors from the pepper. So it's something that you guys as producers can work into your marketing because it's true. Yeah, sure. It Grow it a block a... from the distillery by the oh, yeah. distiller is kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Lemon verbena and the Tuscan blue rosemary that goes in the rosemary. Oh, no yeah. kidding. So they're both grown right here. Oh, wow. On Capitol Hill. Yeah. Huh. These flavors are local flavors, too. Yes. And as a result, yeah, it's the taste yeah. of Seattle entirely, or the taste of Washington, basically. Yeah, that's very huh. true. So kind of shifting gears to your bourbon, what is it like running an urban bourbon distillery? You don't have a gigantic warehouse where you can have 6,000 barrels aging at any given moment. And like right. you said, it takes three and a half years for it to age. Obviously, bourbon is the first thing you put down. You knew it was something you were going to make. Could you talk a little bit about the difficulties of running something that has to age for so long, running a bourbon distillery? Because vodka, you distill it, you bottle it, it's ready. Yeah. Exactly, yes. The beautiful thing about vodka. (laughs) God bless it. Well, I think for the whiskey, the learning curve is extra steep because with our vodka, we can taste like we did earlier, just the drips coming off the still. And you can see, yes, that flavor I want in our vodka, it's there right now. We're in the sweet spot. This is truly the hearts. But with the whiskey, as whiskey makers know, you're putting in some pretty off flavors into your barrel that Mm. are going to add complexity and beauty later on. But you have to develop that palette that isn't just about the best hearts cut was really a, a tricky part to learn. And then, as you noted, this is time component is really difficult from a business perspective because you have all your labor costs, your grain costs, your barrel costs, your rent, (laughs) uh, utilities, everything in there. Yeah, and we'll make money off of all of that in three years. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, if people still like it. (laughs) So that's tricky, but it is really rewarding. It's fun to be making something that the country is so on fire about and really Western Europe as well. Yeah. American bourbon is a hot, hot item right now. So it's fun to be part of that hype. And it has a lot of business problems connected with it once you have to start allocating a product. Mm. I used to look at other distilleries who were allocating their special products that everybody wanted and think, oh, that's the best marketing ever. (laughs) Uh, Everybody wants what they can't have. And now that I'm in the thick of it, I realize, no, actually, people get 
fairly touchy when oh. they want 20 cases and get 15. And oh my gosh. So that's difficult to navigate as well. Because as you said about the vodka, you can make more. Right. You want 20 cases, easily. no problem. Give me a month and we'll yep. get 20 more cases to you. But Right. Uh, yeah. You want 20 more every month? Well, it's ramp up. But sure. the whiskey, you have to say, and four years from now, we'll have it at your door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't have There's the an same IOU for sales four pitch. years. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. So That's an interesting point. But it's a beautiful spirit, and to see it mature and be able to tweak it, I'm like, oh, we're going to add a little more rye now because we're getting some nice sweet notes, but I want a little more spice with the six-month tasting. So you're like making this river of bourbon that you can tweak and play wow. with as it comes mature, and it's coming mature like a person. I'm still not very mature, okay. but uh, <laughs> hopefully one day. One day, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting notes that are shifting all along the way. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a very dramatic and dynamic process. Yeah, so well, I like that part. I would say a mature person would probably say, I'm not going to get into the most heavily regulated industry, most competitive industry in the world uh, yes. and make... Yeah. Much smarter person <laughs> right. than that. So thank God for a little immaturity that said, you know, let's give yeah. it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of stepping out of what's inside the bottle, and I'd kind of like to talk a little bit about your bottles themselves. How did you come up with your bottle design? Do you use a custom bottle? Do you go with a commercially sourced bottle, you know, something that was just in a glass maker's portfolio. I know it's a big question for people who are just getting started. Should I bite the bullet and spend 200 grand up front and buy my own mold and my own bottles? Or do I go with something that my glass maker can just deliver whenever I need it? How did you guys decide to do? What was your direction that you went with your bottles? Well, you touched on like cash flow. Okay. Cash flow <laughs> is It's king. a recurring topic, yes. right? When, <laughs> with so, any business. That's something that enters in when you look at a custom bottle. And people are getting a little more creative on the manufacturing side. So we have had a few companies flirt around the idea that, yes, if we committed to a container load of bottles, they would store them for us and we could pay as we drew from that container as long as we used them all in a year or so. They say six months, we say a year, and they say, okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that's a way to make it work. But it's mm. really hard to commit when you're starting up to that $100,000 worth of glass that you're not seeing a return on. Yeah. I also knew of a few distilleries that I'd worked in and visited that were pulling their hair out. They had orders to fill and they couldn't get their glass. Their custom bottle from France wasn't coming in. So that was a big part of my decision to mm -hmm. find something that I thought was fairly unique that fit the design I had in mind, but also was an off-the-shelf product. Hmm. And it okay. did come back to bite me in, oh, the, no, really? in the ass, as they say, because <laughs> yeah. um, I only knew of one other distillery using our bottle when we started. Okay. And now it's probably the most common bottle oh. uh, out there. <laughs> so I cringe a little bit, but we worked initially with Brian Piper Design, and he did a fantastic job with our labels. Our bottles don't look like any others, even though they're the same shape. You kind yeah. of, the label <laughs> sets it apart. Right, and right. Now I have the... Real pleasure of working with my son on a lot of our labels. Oh, no kidding. He's living in Brooklyn and working as a designer, but on the side, he's helping us with a lot of our labels and doing just a fantastic job. Yeah, so wow. A lot of good back and forth there. So that's been fun. I imagine it's important for you to be able to have with anyone you work with, but especially the creative side of people that you work with, your label designers, because you tell them this is what we're making 
now make a graphical representation of it, you know, out of my words, make it something graphic that you can actually see. Did you have a hard time finding a designer who could grasp your vision and make it reality? Or did you work with someone immediately who kind of got you and just created it? (laughs) Initially, I knew this man's work, Brian Piper's work, because he had worked with my wife on some of her creative projects. As a contemporary choreographer, there's lots of posters that were made. And I knew he was a good collaborator and he knew me, which was, I'm not the perfect client. I had 20 plus years in the art business. So I have a lot of ideas. Gotcha. (laughs) So I don't usually just say, wow, that's so great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) What um, what if you made it a little bit oranger or a little bit more of this or yeah. It's like, here, do you want to just draw it? Yeah, you make it. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. If this was a 32nd of an inch over to the right, it would be better, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> Nightmare. Yeah. No, they both work well with me. Yeah. yeah. But I imagine having that open dialogue with someone is important, though. Yeah, someone you can. Your graphic designer is a part of your team, right? They're responsible yeah. for making your product jump off the shelf to customers. So important. Yeah. Well, then what kind of closure did you go with? I'm just always interested in that. How did you pick the thing that sits on top of the bottle and keeps your spirits safe? What did you go with? We're working with Tappy USA. They're a very good company and they have a real variety. But for our aged spirits, we have a barrel aged gin and our bourbon and some of our other whiskeys too. I just felt like I wanted it to be in character with the product. So in that case, it's a wood enclosure. Again, an expensive business decision, but uh, it's a beautiful varnish. Looks like a piece of fine mahogany. But that's just that reddish mahogany colored wood together with the bourbon is just the perfect visual match. And for me, it was a real sense of quality. Mm -hmm. And then we started out with a more economy version of our stopper quite didn't sit so tall and it had a gripped edge, little raised ridges around the edge. And then we quickly translated that into a stopper that had a little, again, a more sense of quality to it. That okay. was a, instead of plastic, it's a black, shiny black painted aluminum top that is about twice as thick. So I think with packaging, you want to reflect a feeling of quality because people are paying more than they have to for gin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it may be worth every penny they're spending in your minds, but to convince them that it is a quality product, I think that all matters. Yeah, and that's why I like to ask you guys that question because I think you are asking people to make a larger financial investment in trying a bottle of your spirits. You have to think about it all the way through from the bottle to the label, all the way up to the enclosure because that's the tactile thing that someone grabs onto when they open it up and you want to be able to translate your entire story throughout that process of discovery. And you want to work with a company that will work with you too. We had corks that were popping off the top. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So they came up with very quickly (laughs) the stopper portion that had less glycerin on it or whatever they put to (laughs) make them go in and out. So they solved the problem for us. So that's also important. It's not always about saving a few pennies. Yeah. Well, you're still. Okay, I just have to ask you about it. We'll have pictures of it up with the profile on our website. Where did your still come from? It's so unique. It's not like anything you see when you think of a distillery. Yeah, it's so different. Can you talk about that a little bit? It came several ways. When you look at it, what you're seeing is a uh, steampunk version of a, uh, I say, an engineered masterpiece. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Worked with a local engineer, Mike McCaw, who's just a very, very smart man. And he did all the engineering and put together a 550-gallon whiskey still for us, which we also use as our stripping still. And then we have five other stills that are a stainless 
boiler of 55 gallons each. He designed a column where we're getting 195 proof vodka out in one pass. So they're really... Wow. Like I mentioned earlier, they're engineering wonders. Yeah, absolutely. Quite homely. Um, <laughs> not the There's big some flourishes still. on there, you know? Yeah. yeah it's... The big steampunk still is awesome, I think. Yeah, and, totally. uh, yeah, that stemmed from waiting around for the permit to come through. Yeah, one of the things is you have to have a facility and equipment before you get the permit, right. which is kind of a catch-22. If the permit doesn't come through, you are got a long lease to deal with. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> I guess we'll do something else with this. Yeah. yeah. So during that time, when I was just on fire about the business, yeah. and I decided to have some fun with the design. It's a centerpiece, so it's all clad in copper, even though mm-hmm. that's also a stainless boiler. Oh, I see. Okay. You need copper in the process once yeah. you have the vapors, but the boiler itself save a few bucks by using stainless mm-hmm. steel. That decision to go with a handcrafted still, I mean, most stills are made by hand, but just even hand-designed, not going with one of the big still manufacturers, was there any cost benefit to doing something like that, working with a local engineer, or just really gives you a unique story and a unique centerpiece to show off? Well, no, definitely was about startup costs. Okay. It was much, much lower Another, that, that's a huge upfront investment. Yes. Every distiller thinks that they have to make, well, 300 grand for a still or whatever right. it's going to cost. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big. If ouch. I can source one um, one year in advance. <laughs> yeah. With those small stills, those small vodka stills, rather than have you know, a 250-gallon still, the idea was you can grow incrementally and add another small still for some more volume and then yet another one. And it's a little trickier and it's not necessarily the only way to go about it, but there are a lot of benefits as you can grow your business a little more organically that way. Mm -hmm. For me, another huge part of it was to have the engineer live right in Seattle and he's very willing to come and help with the fine-tuning of the stills while we were getting to know each other, yeah. uh, the stills <laughs> okay. and I, it, it was a big, big yeah. benefit. And that said, you know, as people, if you're listening to this and thinking of starting a distillery, we are now buying the big 600-gallon still mm. and 600-gallon mash cooker, and we're ramping up to the bigger equipment. And there's a lot of good arguments for starting with that okay. initially. But we know our brand is off and running now, so I'm a lot more comfortable with the debt mm-hmm. to take on for an equipment financing loan. Makes a lot more sense to my brain than mm. before we even knew if we could do it. You yeah. know? <laughs> now we know we can, so let's go for it. Yeah. This allowed you to get up and running and it kept you going for five years. And it's a lot easier to add equipment to a TTB license space than it is to when you first get started. And like you said, it takes time and you have to do the paperwork and mm-hmm. it takes more time before you can turn it on. And yeah. this allowed you to get going. And now right. you've risen to this spot. Now it's just a matter of filing an amendment to your existing permit, put 600 gallons more capacity into your pipeline. You got it. Yeah, yeah. you understand. And I think the fact that we got up to about 8,500 cases a year, uh, 12 pack cases with this equipment, means it's not a joke. You yeah. know, it's not uh, backyard garage type home distilling equipment. With a lot, a little bit of extra hard work, you can do a real professional level distillery with some serious volume. Yeah. And Alan, is it when you bring people in <laughs> and the still is sitting there and it looks so different, is it a natural conversation starter? <laughs> I no, guess for now? Absolutely. Everything is here from the 2,000 pound sacks of grain that we have and the way yeah. that we cook our mashes now. Part of the romance of Ula Distillery, we can talk about cooking mashes in 55 gallon drums and it takes two days worth of mashes to fill the still and pulling 120 gallons of distillate to split off into the 55 gallon stills. They really see the labor that it takes to put this 
product in the bottle. Yeah, that's great. And your tasting room, it has a very nice feel. It's a lot of wood. All of your bottles are very prominently displayed. You were saying earlier that it helps get foot traffic into here. Was having a tasting room something you, you had designed from the very beginning to do, or was it something you added on later? How does this play into your business plan? Very, very important from the very beginning. Yeah, we were for, I mean, by a factor of several times our best account. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. This room we're sitting in now is mm-hmm. our sales room, and we sold more out of here than any of our other accounts sold initially. And then now that we privatized sales, it's tapered off for sure. But we're thinking about ways to kind of drive sales here too. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges is you don't want to be in too direct competition with some of your best accounts. That's a good point. Which in our case tend to be a block or two away. Mm-hmm. So if you can go up to our central co-op or Trader Joe's and buy our product, we can't really undercut them here. Uh, So a lot of people do come in and they're a little disappointed that, hey, I'm right at the source. Why isn't it cheaper? Yeah, there's no transportation cost or anything. Yeah, (laughs) that's the decision everybody will have to make. But I think the right decision is not to undercut your customers (laughs) who are the on and off premise accounts. Mm -hmm. But it's really important because, again, it's a hand sell and we we're right here talking to people who are making that purchase and explaining their misconceptions away as well as yeah. informing them on a product they hadn't thought of before. And mm-hmm. we're allowed to give tastes out of here. Oh, you are? Well. Okay, so the, the so, Washington law allows you to do that? Yep, you have yeah. four quarter-ounce pours, so oh. that's usually plenty for people to get an idea of mm-hmm. what's a barrel-finished gin. Yeah. And <laughs> in <laughs> right. my world, they're so common now, but really in the bigger world, it's mm-hmm. a pretty esoteric item. And like we were talking earlier, certainly a rosemary vodka. Yeah. It's really nice to be able to taste it. And you can't have a tasting running all constantly in other of our sales locations, like right. the grocery stores. Or Occasionally we'll make that work, but okay. it's here we can do it every day. <laughs> you make the call, you can have the tasting room open. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would think that's very important for something like a barrel-aged gin, which... They're becoming more and more popular. I'm sorry, barrel finished gin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. Yes, they, are be- <laughs> they are becoming more and more popular. You see more of them on the market, but still, it's not something that an average gin drinker would even know what to do with because it has barrel coloring in it, you know? And yep. what, how do I use it? So, being able to come in here and ask you, what do I do with a barrel aged gin? You can actually guide them and say, oh, here, sample it. Right. Here are some cocktails you can try it in. Yeah, you're more likely to make that first sale to that person from this tasting room than just having it on the shelf of a liquor store, I would imagine. So true, yes. Yeah. And you can direct them through a conversation to a product you think they will really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, guys, just a few wrapping up questions. I appreciate your time that you've given me so far. Just curious, now that you have been up and running for five years and you are distributed and you're looking to expand throughout the country, just going back for that first time you fired up your still and did a run, you know, did you have that kind of an oh crap moment? Like, oh man, I hope I really know what I'm doing. Do you remember what it was like the first time you got to fire it up? You got your TTB approval. You're allowed to finally run a distillery. It's something you've been planning for a long time to do. And it's like, oh man, I'm going to flip the switch and actually do this thing. What was that moment like for you? Oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> uh, came <laughs> yeah. later okay. <laughs> uh, with just sort of the headaches of running the business side. But initially to taste the product coming off the stills was just so damn exciting. Yeah. Oh, you I know, bet. it was just pure romance and pure fun. There was no tinge of anything I didn't like about it. But everyone's going to have those moments for sure where they think, 
I'm totally nuts. There's no <laughs> way this can ever work in the long run. And it's a very difficult business. If somebody has a great palate and a real do-it-yourself attitude, you can make a good product and it can be uniquely yours. That can happen. But yeah. from that point on is the real make it or break it in this world, whether you're going to be able to make it into a business. That's where Alan comes in. Yeah, that's right. So hire yourself <laughs> an Alan. Pulling the yeah. troops. Yes, <laughs> and Nicole. <laughs> that and, yeah. leads to the next question I was going to ask you. But, you know, Knowing what you kind of know now, five years in, if you can go back in time and tell five years ago, Kirby, <laughs> in January 2010, here's one piece of advice you need to know now as you're starting. What would that piece of advice be? Would it be, hire this guy named Alan. You won't meet him for a little while, but <laughs> he's going to make all the difference in the world. What would be that one piece of advice? I think for sure, don't get carried away by the romance. Really take the business side very, very seriously. That's so key. You can't ignore that. Because you're opening a business. You're not probably independently wealthy making mm -hmm. product for friends and family. Or you're doing something completely different than we're talking about. But it's get that person on board to help with the business side. If you are that person, mm -hmm. then hire the right distiller with a great palate and a lot of knowledge. And someone who's very serious and impassioned. Yeah. But those are the two main things that need to be in place to make it all work. And I know some people who are approaching it from the business side, and they don't want to make it the product. They want to be proud and have some influence on it, but they're the businessman or businesswoman yeah. to start, and they let others do that. Okay. But usually it's the me's out there who want to mm -hmm. distill and find the Allens out there who <laughs> love the business side and have a passion for the promotion. Mm -hmm. Alan, what would you say then? I mean, because you have so much more experience in selling without giving away the keys to your kingdom, you know, and I'm not asking for proprietary <laughs> secrets. You know, what's one piece of advice you would offer to someone who's just getting started? Oh boy. I think it is the ultimate control of what's going in the package. You have to be proud of it going into the bottle because it translates into the way that you represent it when you're out in the trade. I tell you, one of my guilty pleasures here is going back to the stills during the spirit run. Yeah. And tasting that warm distillate as it comes out, it's absolutely fantastic. And there's no way that you can take that out and taste people on that. But boy, it's seeing it from the ground up here is really what makes me so passionate about it. I know what goes into it. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I do my best to relay that to the consumers and to the restaurateurs and to the independent liquor store owners on a daily basis. Yeah. So don't just make a product that you think the market wants. You have to make a product that you want, that you're passionate about, that Definitely. you can sell. Because a new account is going to hear your passion when you talk about it, or your lack thereof, I would imagine. Yeah. I went from selling 2,500 different items to focusing on eight. Whoa. <laughs> and all eight of them are my children. I just love each and every one of them yeah. for, for what they bring to the table. I couldn't pick a favorite, but I guess I'd have to pick two or three favorites on any given day. Okay. Very cool. Well, guys, has owning a distillery, being on the production side of things, changed the way you go out to restaurants or bars or liquor stores? You know, can you go out and have a nice meal or have a nice cocktail at one of your neighborhood bars? Or are you always looking to see who's on the liquor menu here? You know, what's on the cocktail list? Oh, who's behind the bar? What's your well? Are, is that part of your brain always kind of running because you're on this side now? It never stops. Yeah. <laughs> uh, never stops. Yeah. I, I've learned to call it. Ula-induced Tourette's. If I go <laughs> into a likely account and yeah. I sit down and order my Ula cocktail and they don't have 
Google products. <laughs> it's hard to have what? a good meal. It's yeah. <laughs> it's embarrassing, but true. Honey, let's go. Yeah. This is not a restaurant. No, for you us. can turn it into an opportunity, though. All right. You know, if they don't have it, I always keep a sample bag out in my car, and if they're not too busy, <laughs> I, I go in and I ask okay. them for a Ula Barrel finished gin, old fashioned, and they say, "Well, I don't have it." I said, "Well, here you go, man. One with my <laughs> bottle and." And all of a sudden, the conversation has started about what it is wow. we're doing. Okay. <laughs> I have to be a little more discreet with my uh, disposal unit yeah. <laughs> for a marketing opportunity at every turn. Gotcha. But she has to put up with a few grunts and groans. But, yeah. Uh, it but doesn't it does, have it, to be on the cocktail list. I'll work on that later. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but behind the bar, yes. yes yeah. yeah, it has to be in the, I mean... I went there because it's a quality place. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was a quality place, but yeah. we're not here. <laughs> Drop this ball. Yeah. Well, for the personal cocktail list, for that consumer who comes in and buys a bottle of one of your spirits, be it from your tasting room or from a store, is there one recipe that you can pass on to people? Here's how you should take home one of our spirits and really enjoy it. Could you just share one or two recipes with people on one way to really highlight the flavors of what you're putting in here? I have to mention the margarita that I've been enjoying. Um, I substitute our chili pepper vodka for tequila in a classic margarita. And our underlying vodka that's the base for all our spirits does so well with lime. So fresh lime juice, I upgrade to Cointreau, even though it's hard to spend that money because <laughs> mm, <laughs> I yeah. own a distillery. But <laughs> and then the chili pepper vodka, it's just with a salt rim, the whole thing. Yeah. Excellent, excellent cocktail and really fun to recommend. Very cool. Yeah. So everyone goes to Bloody Mary's with that one. But, yeah, that, uh, that nice sounds like to, the natural one, but it's yeah. a good one too. Oh, cool. But, yeah. So that's a fun little twist. All right. How about yourself, Alan? With the quality of our spirits, my first recommendation is make sure that the cocktail you're going to fix is spirit forward. Traditional wisdom has always been two part mix to one part spirit. I like it the other way two part mm. spirit to one part mix, but it's very important to use high quality ingredients. And I try to limit them to two or three ingredients. I talked about the old fashioned using our barrel finished gin. Mm -hmm. And it's a nice, ripe, bright orange, a little bit of sugar in the raw, and I like orange bitters. And Mm. just simply muddle that up and then let the gin soak on that for a while. I sit down and you have a beautiful cocktail. Very nice. Well, now I'm thirsty, guys, so uh, let's wrap this up. (laughs) Get to the tasting portion. Yeah, uh, well, Kirby Allen, thank you guys so much for your time and speaking with me and educating my listeners about what it takes to make it for five long years in this business. (laughs) All right, let's have a cocktail in Brooklyn. All right, sounds good, guys. Thanks for coming to Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, thank you.